And now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the rules that I am teaching you and do them, that you may live and go in and take possession of the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, is giving you. You shall not add to the word that I command you, nor take from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you. Your eyes have seen what the Lord did at Baal Peor, for the Lord your God destroyed from among you all the men who followed the Baal of Peor. But you, have, but you who held fast to the Lord your God are all alive today. See, I have taught you statutes and rules as the Lord my God commanded me that you should do them in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who, when they hear all these statutes, will say, surely this is a great nation. This great nation is wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? This is God's word. Thanks be to God. I think the main point of Deuteronomy chapter 4 is that God uniquely redeems his people so that they live in a unique way and show off their unique God. I think you can see that main point even in the first eight verses of our our chapter together, but I think that's the entire sweep of Deuteronomy 4. God uniquely redeems his people so that they live in a unique way and show off their unique God. Now, God hasn't reserved this intention just for his people in Deuteronomy 4. You can even see that early Christians live in a unique way that shows off their unique God. Listen to this. In the early 4th century... Still reeling from famine and war, a plague hit the city of Caesarea. People began to flee the city, but there was one group who stayed behind. It was the Christians who were there. The bishop of the city and what was early church historian Eusebius took note of what happened. He said, all day long, the Christians tended to the dying and to their burial. Countless numbers with no one to care for them. Others gathered together from all parts of the city, a multitude of those withered from famine and distributed bread to them all. He went on to say that these deeds were on everyone's lips and they glorified the God of the Christians. Such actions convinced people that the Christians alone were pious and truly reverent to God. Later in that same century, the Roman emperor Julian led a campaign to revive paganism and squash Christianity. But he wrote about his frustration in these efforts to a pagan priest. He said, It is disgraceful that while the impious Galileans, that is the Christians, that while the Christians support both their own poor and ours as well, all men see that our people lack aid from us. Here are Christians living in a unique way to show off their unique God. Now, whether it's Deuteronomy 4 or the 4th century or even now, God wants to convince his people that obedience to him matters. Obedience to him has a purpose. It has a purpose beyond yourself. It is for the good of others. It's to show off even the goodness of God's name to others. Your obedience to God matters. But he said, hold on a second. I thought the Bible teaches that we're saved by grace. We don't earn our salvation by our works. He's talking about all this obedience stuff. Yes, my friend, we will proclaim to our dying breath that God saves us by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Yes, that's amen. It's true. 
But we have to say, along with the reformists, that that faith never is alone. That faith is demonstrated, it's proved, it's evidenced with our obedience. Friend, if you are saved by Christ's sacrifice for your disobedience and his perfect obedience that's credited to you, you must be careful to remember your obedience to God still matters. You and I need the message of Deuteronomy 4 that God uniquely redeems his people so that they live in a unique way and show off their unique God. From this chapter, we'll see the purpose of obedience, the threats to obedience, and the heart of obedience. First, the purpose. Let's go back to chapter 4, verse 1. And remember, in chapters 1 through 3, Moses has just laid out the recent history of Israel. The whole point of the book of Deuteronomy is for God to move his people forward with what he's called them to do, to go into the land that he's promised them. So Moses points them backwards so that they'll go forward. As they look back, they're humbled by their failures, being confident in themselves, and they're encouraged by their victories that were given to them by the Lord. And so Deuteronomy 4 begins with the so what of that recent history. Since they have every reason to have confidence in God, now, as chapter 4 begins, they should listen and do the statutes and the rules God is teaching them. Now, that's the main thrust of the chapter, to listen and do the statutes and rules. But what statutes and rules is Moses talking about? Well, we're not even told specifics yet. Moses just begins with the general concept. Just saying, guys, you need to obey God's commands. You need to follow in his ways. And he says, no more and no less in verse 2. Moses isn't yet so much concerned with the what of those commands as the why they should obey them. He tells them the purpose of their obedience. In verse 1, he says the purpose is that so that they may live and may go in and take possession of the land that the Lord, your God, is giving you. He'll go on to explain how some from their midst didn't obey and they didn't live. So in Deuteronomy 4, verse 3, he refers back to an incident recorded first in Numbers chapter 25. There, women from the surrounding nation of Moab seduced a number of men from the nation of Israel. Then these men were led into worshiping their God instead of the one true God. So what's the purpose of their obedience? Well, they should obey so that they live and inherit the land. But just looking at Deuteronomy 4, verse 1, you might already spot attention. Moses says that they must obey to get the land. At the same time, Moses says that this is the land that the Lord has given you. So which one is it? Do they get the land because of their obedience? Or do they get the land because of God's promise? Yes. (laughs) As we continue in Deuteronomy, we'll discover that God didn't originally give this promise of land because of Israel's great obedience. No. God didn't promise this because of their goodness. He promised it because of his own goodness. This promise was given out of grace, undeserved kindness. At the same time, God's people are to receive this promise in trust and obedience. So it's given in grace. It's to be received in trust and obedience. Friends, that dynamic is still at play in the Christian life. I think of how we closed our time of worship last week, looking to 1 Thessalonians 5, 23 through 25, which says this. 
Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Oh, what a great, beautiful, reassuring promise. But alongside verses like that, which tell us God is going to hold on to you, there are verses like Matthew 24, verse 13, which says you must hold on to God. In that verse, Jesus says only those who persevere to the end will be saved. So which one is it? Do you keep following Jesus all the way to heaven because God held on to you or because you held on to God? Yes. <laughs> to explain a little bit more, the promise of God holding on to you is what enables you to hold on to him. I'm not the first one to explain it like this, uh, but, but you can think of it like this. You know, we're helping our son learn how to sit up. So we'll put him on the changing table and I'll hold out my two fingers like this and he'll grab on. And he's got a pretty good grip. But, and so I, but I will pull him up so that he sits up all the way. Now, what is the true basis of his security that he's going to make it and he's not going to fall? Is it the strength of his grip or is it the strength of mine? It's, it's the strength of mine. And yet he still is genuinely holding on. Psalm 63 verse 8 captures this perfectly. It says, my soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. So Israel must obey to receive the land. But they'll obey only as they believe it's God's promise that he's the one who will do it. Followers of Jesus must persevere to the end to receive the inheritance of heaven. But you'll only do that only as you trust God will keep you to the end. So God wants the Israelites to listen and do what he says. And the first purpose for that is that so that they'll inherit the land he's giving to them. But the second purpose comes in verse 6. He says, keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of all the peoples. So maybe we can put these two purposes like this, that Israel shouldn't just obey for their own sake. Israel should also obey for the sake of other people. I wonder if you've ever thought about this this way. Have you ever thought about your obedience this way? That your obedience to God isn't just for you. It's for the sake of the people around you. You might say, well, Steve, I thought Jesus roasted the Pharisees for drawing attention to their good deeds. After all, remember what Jesus said in Matthew 6, 1? He says, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. I don't want to be someone like that. Yeah, Jesus did say that. You shouldn't do your good works just to be seen by others. You shouldn't do your good works just to receive recognition or applause. But if Jesus really has saved you, if Jesus really has changed you, it's just inevitable. Your life will look different to other people and other people will notice. At the same time, Jesus also said to let your light shine before others that they may see your good works and not praise you, but glorify your father who is in heaven. God intended the nations around Israel to see how much his own people enjoyed closeness to him, to be utterly unique in their relationship with God. He intended all the nations around Israel to see the goodness and wisdom of God's ways as Israel lived them out. 
This is because God blesses his people and he intends them to be a conduit, not a cul-de-sac. He saves them, he changes them, he's close to them so that the blessing of knowing him might spread to others around them. This purpose goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 12, where God blesses Abraham and his descendants so that in them all the nations would be blessed. Let's put this into real life, some real flesh and bones for what difference this might make, that God intends to save you and change you so that you might be a blessing to others, so that your life might demonstrate what closest to God looks like. Think about it maybe in a negative way. Picture a neighbor, a neighbor that you have. We'll call him Joe. Uh, I don't think there's anyone named Joe in this room. I apologize if there is. This is just the first name that comes to mind. Um, Joe regularly blasts the stereo at his house. And it's not even good music. It's music you don't like. You hear Joe argue with his wife really on an almost weekly basis. You hear him yell at his kids all the time. Every fall comes around and Joe's got a big tree in his front yard. And Joe takes all the leaves from that tree and he just blows them on your, on your lawn. Every fall comes around, every, really every election, and Joe puts up maybe 25 political signs in his front lawn. And, and Joe, it, Joe doesn't just blast his music. Joe has dogs. Not just one dog, multiple dogs, and they're mean dogs. Joe's dogs get out of his yard all the time and you have to help go get them. And Joe's dogs bark into all hours of the night. Can you picture Joe, your neighbor Joe? Now picture this. Let's say it's around Christmas time, maybe a week leading up to Christmas, and you're going out to get the mail. And you bump into your neighbor Joe. And to your surprise, Joe invites you to his church. What would you say? Would you be interested in going to the church where Joe goes? What kind of place has shaped him into a man who is so inconsiderate and rude? Why would you be interested in going to the church where Joe goes? It's an exaggerated scenario, I know. But for God's people then and God's people now, listen, the people around you are going to see how you live before they see the God you believe in. Or to put it in a way I've heard it before, listen, your neighbor's probably not going to watch a Christian, a Christian movie. They're kind of cheesy anyway. But your neighbor will watch a Christian. They have you in, your, in their lives. So God says, obey my statutes and rules. Live as I call you to live, he tells his people. And guys, it's not for no purpose. It's for good purposes. It's for the purpose that you might enjoy life with me in the land that I've promised. It's for the purpose that you might be used by me to draw others to me. This all sounds great. So you're telling me that God's people did this and they all lived happily ever after. No, I'm not telling you that. I wish that were the case. But in Deuteronomy 4, verses 9 through 31... Moses tells them that they have tendencies in themselves that lead them away from God and not toward them, toward him. These tendencies are threats to their obedience, threats to their obedience. And there are two of them. He lays out the first threat in verses 9 through 14. It's the threat of forgetfulness. Look at Deuteronomy 4, verse 9. He says, only keep your soul diligently lest you forget the things that, all your, that your eyes have seen, and lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life. 
Forgetfulness is a threat to their obedience. I've used this analogy before, but since we're talking about forgetting, I won't assume that you remember it. (laughs) Forgetting is so easy for you and me because your heart is like the strings on a guitar. You know, if I'm lucky, I maybe pick up my guitar once a month, and that way I can still reassure myself that I can stumble through Country Roads Take Me Home by John Denver. But every time I pick up, my, pick up my guitar, without fail, the strings are out of tune. The strings don't remember the right way to be tuned. They must be kept in tune. Your heart is like that. That's why we sang earlier, tune my heart to sing your praise. So Moses tells them that they're going to easily forget all the things that they've seen. And what are those things? Well, he goes on to explain things like God showing up in the fire at Mount Sinai, where they saw no form, but they heard God. And there at Mount Sinai, he spoke to them. There at Mount Sinai, he committed himself to them in covenant. There at Mount Sinai, he gave them instructions for how to live in relationship to him. Instructions summed up in the Ten Commandments. In other words, Moses tells them, you guys can easily forget what God's like. You can easily forget who God is. You can easily forget what God has done for you. You can easily forget who you are in light of God. You can easily forget just what God has said in his word. And if they had a hard time believing that we're forgetful, hard time believing that the strings of our heart fall out of tune, all they had to do was remember their parents. No less than a few days removed after God saved them from Egypt, their parents are complaining in the desert saying God delivered us to kill us. Instead of remembering what God had said, that God delivered us to dwell with us, to be his people. So their forgetfulness of God threatens their obedience to God. And now the question is, how do you begin to neutralize that threat? How do you combat it? Do you just listen to the advertisements on TV for those magic pills that help fix your memory? Well, no, Moses gives them two instructions. He tells them, keep your soul diligently and make them known to your children and your children's children. This is how you combat your forgetfulness. Keep your soul diligently. Let's go back to the guitar strings for just a second. The pioneer missionary to China, Hudson Taylor, once said this. He said, do not have your concert first and then tune your instrument afterwards. No, begin the day with the word of God and prayer and get first of all into harmony with God. I love that image. It just makes so much sense, doesn't it? Friends, so when you open up the Bible, when you pray, when you gather together with God's people to worship him, don't treat these as empty activities. I know you're really used to it. I know you do things that you've done before. I know you read things that you've read before, but treat these times as God fixing your forgetfulness. Treat even this time as God getting your heart into harmony with his. Keep your soul diligently. That combats the forgetfulness, but it's more than just that. Notice the end of Deuteronomy chapter four, verse nine again. Moses says they can combat their forgetfulness of God by teaching about God. Specifically, teaching children. And I think as Moses is writing, I think he's saying this doesn't just benefit the kids. This actually is going to benefit you. It's going to keep this in front of you. You know how I know if I've really understood the sermon that I'm about to preach is if I can do kids time. (laughs) 
is if I can understand it well enough and explain it even to kids. You want to know if you really understand the word of God and the gospel? Be able to explain it to a child. If you're at all hesitant about serving in West Creek Kids, I know that it might not be for everybody, but if you still are on the fence, think about that God, when you teach and, and serve in that ministry, God just won't, won't just work in the kids through that. He'll work in you. He'll solidify what you believe. He'll keep it in front of you. He'll combat your tendency just to forget him. So, big picture, just as a reminder. God calls his people to obey him because he has great purposes for them. He wants them to enjoy life with him in the land that he's promised. He wants to use them to draw others to himself. But there are threats to their obedience. Threat one is they tend to forget God. Threat two is that they tend to worship things besides God. He lays out this threat from verses 15 through 31. In verse 16, you can see what Moses warns them about. He warns them about making a carved image for yourselves in the form of any figure. And then he goes on to give examples. He says images of people, of animals, of birds, of insects, of fish. In addition to that, he warns them in verse 19, don't worship the sun, the moon, or the stars. Now take a look at that whole list of examples. And if you pay attention closely, it actually sounds a lot like Genesis 1. Except the order is reversed. It's almost like Moses is communicating. Idolatry will reverse how you were created to live. It's devoting yourself to what was made instead of devoting yourself to the one who made you. It's like using your iPhone as a hammer. I mean, it might work as a hammer for a little while, but sooner or later, it's going to break because it's not what it was created for. And you read this list of examples, maybe you think, come on, Steve. I'm a modern person. I know better than to worship little statues. I know better than to worship things in the sky. Well, if that's you, I... The Bible talks about people like you. Ezekiel 14 says that you set up idols in your heart. That it really could be anything. Here's one way to look at your heart. Just think about how you use your time. I bet a lot of us here, I bet you hear people saying all the time, I'm just so busy, I'm so busy. If only I had more time. That's just what I need. I just need more time. Friend, there very well could be legitimate demands on your time. I don't want to dismiss that. But time may not be what you actually need. Because what dominates your time often indicates what has captured your heart. So it could be that you feel so busy because you're idolizing your work. It could be that you feel so busy because you idolize your appearance. It could be that you feel so busy because you idolize your comfort and your entertainment. It could be you feel so busy because you idolize your importance. Listen, many of these are good things. They're just bad God things. So what you really need is not more time, but maybe what you really need is to dethrone that cruel God you've set up to serve in your heart and instead experience the liberating freedom of how you were created to live, and that is the worship of the one true God. Idols are simply anything that you put in the place where only God belongs. Of course that's a threat to your obedience to God. But why is idolatry such a big deal? 
What makes it so bad? Go back to Deuteronomy 4, verse 15. There Moses writes, Since you saw no form on the day that the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the midst of the fire. This is sort of the basis of him telling them, don't make a God in, your, in, in an image. It's because of how God has revealed himself. And so what Mo- Moses is communicating here is that idolatry lies about what God's like. Idolatry says things like, I can make God into whatever I want it to be. Idolatry says, I can make a God who always agrees with me. Idolatry says, I can make a God who changes with the times. Idolatry says, I can make a God who affirms my desires. Idolatry says, I can make a God who prioritizes what will make me happy instead of what will make me good. And what you should say is that I worship God based on how he has revealed himself in his word, based on what he said. Listen, when you ignore God's word, when you downplay God's word, when you change God's word, you're left with worshiping an idol. You're left with worshiping a God you've made in your own image. And friends, that's not just bad because it lies about what God's like. It's bad because it it shortchanges you. Deuteronomy Deuteronomy 4 explains how idolatry is just a bad trade. When you trade God for an idol, you trade one who speaks and saves for one who can't speak and can't save. You can read about that in verse 28. It's a warning, it's a prophecy that they'll end up in this foreign land, no longer being a light to the nations, but blending in with the nations. And there it says, you will serve gods of wood and stone, the work of human hands that neither see nor hear nor eat or smell. We read about this time in Isaiah 46, a little bit earlier in our service. And there the contrast between idols and God is stark and striking. Friend, anything you worship besides God, you will have to carry. And that's a bad trade. Instead of worshiping the one, the only one, who can carry and save you. So if idolatry is a threat to your obedience, to the good purposes that God intends for your life, how do you neutralize that threat? How do you combat it? Well, you can do more than think just about how bad idolatry is. You should also treasure how good God is. Why would you ever go to anyone else? I think Deuteronomy 4 shows you five different angles that you can treasure God's goodness. Angle one is that you can treasure the goodness of God in saving you. Look at Deuteronomy 4, verse 20. It says, But the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt, to be a people of his own inheritance as you are to this day. A sure way to maintain your loyalty to God is to remember his unrivaled love for you. Deuteronomy 4.20 is a great statement. But I think 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19 is an even greater statement. It goes like this. And for all those who trust in Christ, you were ransomed for the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Or spot. Idolatry threatens your obedience to God, but you can neutralize that threat by treasuring God's goodness. Even from a second angle, you can treasure God's goodness in giving you a special status. Again, Deuteronomy 4.20 says that God's people are his own inheritance. 
To return to 1 Peter, as we read earlier, it says Christ's people are his own possession. This is important. It should remind God's people that God doesn't intend to show what he's like through the little statues that they made. No, God intends to show what he's like through them, the one he's made in his own image. Oh, what a privilege that is. Idolatry threatens your obedience, but you can neutralize that threat by treasuring God's goodness, even from a third angle. You can treasure God's goodness of being jealous for you. Look at verse 24. It says, for the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. You say, this is God's goodness? Yes, I'm going to make that case to you. Think about it like this, husbands. Would you be indifferent to your wife wearing that special dress you bought her to go out on a date with another man? <laughs> Wives, would you be indifferent to your, to your husband if you saw on his phone and the screensaver of it there was a picture of another woman that you know? Of course you wouldn't be indifferent. And we say God's jealousy is nothing to be trifled with. Idolatry is quite literally playing with fire. But my friend, God wouldn't be good if he wasn't jealous for the people he loves. Idolatry threatens your obedience, but you can neutralize that threat by treasuring God's goodness. Even from a fourth angle, his goodness in disciplining you. Yeah, even that is God's goodness. Moses looks ahead to the future in verse 25. He knows they're going to serve idols. And when they do, he knows God will cast them out of the land where he is especially present. And when they do, God will scatter them among foreign nations. In just a couple of short sentences, Moses pretty much sums up what will happen in the rest of the Old Testament. Yes, God is even good in disciplining his people. Think about it like this. When our son begins to crawl and explore all around our house, he might be lured to the warm glow of the hot oven. Would it be loving for me to be indifferent to him reaching out his hand to touch it? Of course it wouldn't. And so, my friend, your heavenly father loves you enough not to be indifferent to what will harm you. So I can't tell you that every difficulty in your life is the Lord's discipline. But I can tell you that God loves you enough to lead you away from what will harm you and to lead you toward him who will help you. Idolatry threatens your obedience, but you can neutralize that threat by treasuring God's goodness, even from a fifth angle, especially God's goodness in his faithfulness and mercy and forgiveness. Look at verses 30 and 31. It says, when you are in tribulation and all these things come upon you in the latter days, you will return to the Lord your God and obey his voice for the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not leave you or destroy you or forget the covenant with your fathers that he swore to them. Praise God that he doesn't treat you as you deserve. <laughs> Praise God for his mercy to restore those who rebel. Praise God that his love for you isn't based on your goodness, but on his. It reminds me of a line from a song we sing, which goes like this. I change he changes not. The Christ can never die. His love, not mine, is the resting place. His truth, not mine, is the time. Your obedience to God matters. God's people need to know now 
what they needed to know back then. That God hasn't just saved you from the judgment you deserve. God has also saved you for good works. Your obedience to God is central to the good purposes he has for your life. But your obedience to God has threats to it. You and I tend to forget who God is and what he has said in his word. And you and I tend to worship idols instead of worshiping God. Now we close our time by looking at the heart of obedience. Now it's just too good of a section for me not to read it. So follow along as I read verses 32 through 40. Okay, Deuteronomy 4, verses 32 through 40. For ask now of the days that are past, which were before you since the day that God created man on the earth, and ask from one end of the heaven to the other, whether such a great thing as this has ever happened or was ever heard of. Did any people ever hear the voice of a God speaking out of the midst of the fire as you have heard and still live? Or has any God ever attempted to go and take a nation for himself from the midst of another nation by trials, by signs, by wonders, and by war, and by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, and by great deeds of terror, all of which the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes? To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord is God. There is no other besides him. Out of heaven he lets you hear his voice that he might discipline you. And on earth he lets you see his great fire, and you heard his words out of the midst of the fire. And because he loved your fathers and chose their offspring after them and brought you out of Egypt with his own presence, by his great power, driving out before you nations greater and mightier than you, to bring you in, to give you their land for an inheritance as it is this day. Know therefore today and lay it to your heart that the Lord is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. There is no other. Therefore, you shall keep his statutes and his commandments, which I command you today, that it may go well with you and with your children after you, and that you may prolong your days in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for all time. We said we're closing by talking about the heart of obedience. Now, in a chapter that emphasizes so much that you've got to do stuff, you have to obey God, you have to listen and respond to him in obedience, obeys all these statutes and rules. For a chapter with all that emphasis, why does it talk so much about worship? Why does it talk so much about how you shouldn't worship idols, but you should worship God instead? Even think about the Ten Commandments. Famously, the Ten Commandments are a list of rules, what you should do and shouldn't do. But how does the Ten Commandments start? The very first commandment. It says, you shall not worship any God before me. Before it talks about what you do, it talks about what you worship. That's because what you worship will determine how you live. That's the heart of obedience. What you worship will determine how you live. We made a similar point about time earlier. We said that what captures your heart will often largely determine what, how you spend your time. So I, I think I've shared this before, but you know, when I started to date Kate, I changed how I spend my time. All of a sudden, I adopted this new habit that I would call her on the phone at 9.30 every night and talk for an hour. What explains my new habits, my new use of time? It's because she had captured my heart. But if you're not a Christian, I wonder if you would concede with most people that you know, nobody's perfect. And everybody's made mistakes. Everybody's even committed sins. What if you would concede that? 
Now, if you're not a Christian, you might think that your attempt to live a good life is something like you shooting a target, like we saw earlier. You say, you know, sometimes I hit the mark, sometimes I'm a little off, sometimes I mess up. But if what you worship and what you love determines how you live, well, my friend, that means that unless you worship God, you don't just miss the target. You are aimed in the completely wrong direction. You're aimed at living for yourself or living for some idol. That's why God calls you and why God calls me to repent. Literally, to turn from whatever you're aimed at and turn toward him, the one true God. What you worship, what you love will shape how you live. So even Christ's followers in the room, if you want to grow and be faithful in your obedience, you don't just need to adopt certain new behaviors. You need to examine your heart. Where am I aimed? What has captured it? So the close of chapter 4 talks so much about worship because worship is the basis of your obedience. And the close of chapter 4 makes the case to you that no one else is worthy of your worship besides the one true God. It tells you there's none other who can do what God can do. There's none other who loves like God loves. There's none other who can save like God saves. There's none other who cares like God cares. I just love the way that Moses asks these questions, starting in verse 32. It's like he wants to woo and wonder the people into worship. To look long at the greatness and beauty of the Lord and for their hearts to be recaptured by him so that they will go in his direction. It's like he tells them, he, he has saved you. He, he speaks to you. He's made you alive. He's kept you. He's made you his own. He is worthy of your worship. He alone is. As you zoom out and look ahead to the Bible, it tells you that not only is there only one true God who is worthy of your worship, the Bible will also tell you that there is only one way to God, and that is through his son, Jesus. You know, Jesus is, is the only life perfectly aimed in the direction of worshiping his father. And therefore, Jesus's was the only life of perfect obedience to all of God's statutes and rules. This means that Jesus fulfilled God's great purposes that he intended for his people, that you and I have failed to live up to. And this means that all people everywhere, all the nations of the earth, can now look at Jesus and see what God is truly like. That Jesus is called the image of the invisible God. And yet for all this, Jesus was disciplined by the Father. He was banished from God's presence. And not for his own disobedience, but for the disobedience of all those who would turn from their idols and trust in him. And to prove that God accepted what Jesus did, he rose him from the dead. And so now, when you treasure God's goodness displayed ultimately in his son, that he would do all this for a sinner like you, your heart is captured. And the spirit who raised him from the dead dwells in you and your heart is rewired so that you have the desire and the ability to live like you were created to live. And that is a unique life of obedience 
that shows off your uniquely good God. Let's pray. Lord, we are prone to wander. We feel it. We are prone to leave you, the God we love, the God even who has first loved us. Lord, would you take our hearts and seal them? Would you tune our hearts as we continue to come to you? Would you tune our hearts so that they are captured and in harmony with your ways? So that to the glory of your name and to the good of those around us, you would cause us to live how you have called us to live in obedience to your good ways. Lord, please help us, for we cannot do this on our own. And we pray that if there are any here who have never had their hearts captured by Christ and have given themselves to him, that you would pull them in your direction for the first time today, for their good and your glory. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.